You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. Later in the program, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between WFHB and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, an Indiana judge temporarily blocked the statewide abortion ban earlier today. That's coming up next in your State House Roundup. afternoon. This is your State House Roundup for September 22nd. I'm Benedict Jones. An Indiana judge blocked the statewide abortion ban on Thursday, one week after the law took effect. The temporary halt of the law came from a lawsuit by abortion providers who argued the policy violates the Indiana Constitution. Owen County Judge Kelsey Hanlon issued a preliminary injunction against the ban effectively, placing the abortion ban on hold. The judge wrote, quote, there is reasonable likelihood that this significant restriction of personal autonomy offends the liberty guarantees of the Indiana Constitution, end quote. Indiana became the first state to issue severe restrictions on abortion once the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June of this year. The ban was approved by the GOP-dominated state legislature in August and was then signed by Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb. The American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana said in a statement, quote, we knew this ban would cause irreparable harm to Hoosiers, and in just seven days, it has done just that. We are grateful that the court granted much-needed relief for patients, clients, and providers, but the fight is far from over, end quote. The ACLU said this is a temporary but crucial victory, while their lawsuit challenging the ban moves through the courts. Tuesday, September 20th, marked National Voter Registration Day, a nonpartisan civic holiday celebrating democracy in the United States. The holiday involves volunteers and organizations from all over the country hitting the streets in a single day of coordinated field technology and media efforts. Indiana residents can register to vote online, by mail, or in person. To register to vote online, visit indianavoters.com. Residents with a valid driver's license or a state-issued identification card can use this tool to submit a new voter registration application or to update an existing voter registration record. To register to vote or update your current registration by mail or in person, you will need to complete the voter registration form on or before October 11th ahead of the 2022 general election. A link to that voter registration form can be found at WFHB.org following this broadcast. You will need to return the completed form to Monroe County Election Central at 401 West 7th Street, Suite 100, Bloomington, Indiana 47404. 
You can also return the form to the Indiana Election Division at 302 West Washington Street, room E204 in Indianapolis. For more information, you can contact Monroe County Election Central by calling 812-349-2690 or emailing ljwilson at co.monroe.in.us. That's all for your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. The Monroe County Women's Commission met on September 15th. Chair of the commission, Nichelle Whitley-Wash, expressed concern that their commission has not had access to their meeting room and made a note that they need to have this problem addressed. Whitney-Wash also said the commission needs a secretary and a vice president. We need a secretary, and I would encourage a vice chair for this commission. The secretary is necessary. We have got to identify someone who will serve as a secretary. The primary role of a secretary is to capture minutes. So we did not record written minutes for our last meeting. Okay, so we're going to have to retroactively do that. But also this person makes sure that the meeting minutes and agendas get to our board of commissioners so that this stuff can be published online. Okay, the vice chair is the person who works hand in hand with the chair. You can facilitate meetings. You can since you do most of the things that the chair does, okay, I recognize that everyone is new and stepping into a vice chair role may seem like a lot, especially after over your second meeting, okay? So I'm not going to push anyone to be a vice chair right now, but at the start of the year, I will be doing some one-on-one conversations to see who would at least be interested and then let's prepare you for that role, okay? but we do need a secretary. And so we don't have to vote on that today in case anyone wants to do a one-on-one and chat, but in our October meeting, we'll need to designate that. Next, Whitney Wash introduced the co-chair of the Bloomington Commission on the Status of Women, Ashley Hazelrig, who shared how the commissioners could work together in the future. You know, for a long time, because we want to be able to um, foster this relationship between these two commissions. We want to be able to understand what it is that your needs are because um, they very much <laughs> likely overlap with a lot of our mm-hmm. needs and a lot of the work that you're doing. Um, be able to offer you some extra hands if needed and hopefully reciprocate that back to us. So mm-hmm. um, very excited to be here. This is actually my first county commission meeting that I think I've ever been to. Oh. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited um, and we're excited to have um, a closer relationship with this commission. So thank you for having me and thank you for um, making sure that this seat got filled. Whitney Wash said the commissioners have collaborated with each other over the years. I think it was in 2019, we were very intentional to make sure that BCSW had a voting seat here. So we don't want them to just come and be a fly on the wall. What is happening at the city level is absolutely important with the county. Okay, So thank you. We're so happy you're here. Um, because BCSW comes to our meetings, we also have an opportunity to go and attend their meetings. Can you tell us a little bit about BCSW meetings? When are they? Where are they? And then I will put a charge out to the commissioners. We do need a liaison that should be attending. And are we voting? 
on no no okay so we do not have a voting seat on the city commission so we still can be a part of <laughs> what you say matters just know that even though you're not raising your hand and yaying your name your opinion matters Next, Whitney Wash suggested that they consider changing the date and time of the meeting in 2023 to accommodate Commission Member Jennifer Crossley's schedule. So we should try to get to some sort of consensus. I personally am recommending that we stick to third Thursdays for the remainder of this year and reconsider with 2023, because when you all signed on as commissioners, that was the understanding of the time. I think if it's important that we can get six people here for quorum, and I know that um, um, Commissioner Tiana would have been here as well for this time, rather than adjusting for one person who's incredibly important and that vote does matter. But I think feasibility wise, I would recommend we stay with third Thursdays for the remainder of this year and then reconsider 2023. Councilmember Nikki Williamson agreed and said that it's a good idea to reevaluate everyone's availability at the start of the new year. The commission voted unanimously to continue meeting on the third Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and to reevaluate in 2023. The next meeting will be held on October 20th. Up next, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration between WFHB and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. In the September edition, we welcome Professor Shruti Rana, a professor at Indiana University's Department of International Studies, specializing in international law. She holds a degree from Columbia Law School, the London School of Economics and Politics, and UC Berkeley. We turn to that interview. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters of Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're very pleased to say you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we welcome Shruti Rana, who is a professor at Indiana University's Department of International Studies with a specialty in international law. And she holds degrees from Columbia Law School, the London School of Economics and Politics, and my alma mater, UC Berkeley. And she's here today to talk with us about immigration issues. Welcome, Professor Rana. Thank you, it's great to be here. And what could be more timely? Just la- a couple of days ago, we have the Texas governor and the, the Florida governor rounding up illegal immigrants and shipping them north on the public tab to places like uh, Massachusetts and uh, Washington, D.C. and Chicago uh, and New York. What's going on here? So a lot of people, in fact, are saying this is a lot like kidnapping. What do you think about it? 
I think this is heartbreaking and outrageous. We're seeing human beings being used as political props for a political stunt. Um, what these governors are doing, we've actually seen this before during some of the most embarrassing points in American history. Um, for example, we had white citizens councils during the Jim Crow era that would try and move people to northern states with fewer Jim Crow laws. Again, as a political stunt, we saw this happening um, at the end of uh, d during the Civil War period as well. And and again, it's just it's just outrageous to fail to treat people as human beings, especially people who have come to the United States because of the promise of freedom, of humanity, of civil and human rights, and to treat them in this manner. And you know, not only that, we see that there is some evidence coming out that the governors um, duped or at least misled um, the people that they put on planes. We know that they spent vast amounts of taxpayer dollars, and it's even unclear what they were trying to do again, except to um, use people people as political props. Okay, thank you for that. Um, once you start digging into immigration, you're going to find, as I did, that it's connected with so many other things. And let's start with something we're all familiar with, just for an example. Let's start with the pandemic. Has the pandemic affected immigration? What do you think about that? Yes, the pandemic had a virtually unprecedented impact on immigration worldwide. So we saw both in the United States and around the world that nations literally closed their borders, again, in a way that we have not seen um, even back looking back to World War II. So that meant an abrupt halt to almost all forms of immigration um, around the world. We saw families and people being caught in limbo, right? Some people were just on trips, unable to return home. We had children in schools, unable to go back home to their families. And um, so we had a tremendous human cost from all of that. In addition to what was actually happening, one of the things we saw during the pandemic, especially here in the United States, was the pandemic being used again as a political prop to um, expand um, people's grievances against immigration, right? To further target immigrants as if they had something to do with the causes of the pandemic, both within the United States, as well as um, we saw the pandemic being used as an excuse to institute draconian laws, laws that didn't have anything to do with public health or were science-based or even had, um, you know, um, any reason for us to believe that they would be effective in, in any of their stated goals, but were really about stigmatizing immigrants, trying to blame them for the pandemic and trying to keep people, um, using this as an excuse to keep people from immigrating to the United States. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about federal immigration policy and federal immigration practice. Uh, specifically, do you see any major difference between the Trump presidency and the Biden presidency there? Yes, there's a very big difference. Um, we've seen a virtual 180 degree turn. So again, during the Trump administration, immigration was highly, highly politicized and immigration um, immigrants were targeted to be stigmatized and um, used as scapegoats for many of the problems that the United States faces. And we saw some laws that, again, um, really, I think, um, you know, had a big impact on the views that people abroad had of the United States. Like we saw the Muslim ban, we saw other things like that um, really targeting immigrants. Um, in addition to horrific policies like the family separation policy, we saw the Trump administration implementing. So the Biden administration has tried to undo the worst of the damage whatever they could um, turn, you know, um, 
um, roll back or um, turn back. They have tried to do that, but what they've been able to mostly do is incremental changes, right? A lot of these things have far-reaching consequences that you can't just flip a switch and, you know, put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak, and try and um, undo what has happened. Um, so we see that the Biden administration is making a lot of attempts to um, address some of the huge problems that were caused during the Trump administration, but largely the administration is making incremental changes, changing things at the margins or trying to undo the worst of the Trump administration. And many serious problems in our immigration system remain that are not being addressed that we do need to address. Okay. You mentioned our child separation policy. Can you talk about the political impact of our child separation policy? I think that political impact can be divided into um, two parts. One is the impact that it had globally. Again, it really reduced the stature of the United States in the eyes of the world, and it showed the United it showed the world that the United States was willing to treat people um, in ways it said it would never do, and in ways that directly conflict in the most obvious ways with our constitution and our values. So, I think that had a tremendous impact on U.S. standing abroad, and correspondingly on U.S. power abroad. Um, within the United States, I think it had um, a different effect. And the effect in the United States was really galvanizing, right? It put, um, you know, direct faces on um, and made extremely visible what was happening in immigration and what the human cost of our draconian policies and the stigmatizing and targeting of immigrants was happening was having on people. And I think, you know, almost every American cares about children and cares about tearing families apart. And I think so many people couldn't believe that this was happening, that they were seeing this happen, that it had come to this. And it proved to be a galvanizing political force where I think um, mobilizing more and more people. Okay. The politics of immigration, they can be quite divisive. And it seems to me that after years and years of immigration as usual, or so it seemed to me anyway, why has it become all of a sudden such a huge political issue, the issue, a major issue of our times? So I think that you're right that the underlying um, causes and impacts of immigration haven't really changed, aside from some of the things I mentioned about the pandemic. So what you really saw going on was a political change, right? That again, immigrants were being used as political props. And one of the things that we are seeing, I think the main reason for what we're seeing in the United States is rising political extremism. This is something that you see, we are seeing worldwide. When you have a rise in populist, authoritarian, um, nationalism, all of those things are predicated on this idea of who is entitled to citizenship in the nation, who is a part of a nation and who is not. And those in populist, authoritarian and nationalist movements that is always premised on exclusion. And um, the primary targets of these movements of exclusion are immigrants, people of color, women, LGBTQ individuals. And we see, again, all of these groups being used as political props in order to exploit grievances gain political power um, by scapegoating and stigmatizing people who aren't able to fight back as much. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the economy. Everything seems to affect the economy. Can you name some specific economic effects of immigration? We think that immigration has a lot of effects on the economy and they're primarily positive. So new people, young people, people who are working people coming into an economy, as is the case in the United States, increases productivity. It increases economic growth. Um, it increases consumer spending. It increases 
dynamism and innovation in the economy. So overall, we see large economic impacts um, that, um, again, are mostly positive. We also have the immigrants that are coming in that are taking, um, that are um, coming in and building new businesses, you know, pursuing education, um, holding jobs. They are also paying into the U.S. economy in so many different ways. They're paying taxes, they're paying sales taxes, they're paying into Social Security and other funds um, where they're not entitled to actually receive benefits, right? So they're in in many ways, they're contributing to the US economy um, and economic growth in so many different ways. Your comments make me think about corporations. And I know that one of your major concerns is corporate responsibility for matters of immigration. What are your thoughts on that? So I think corporations have a big responsibility to think about immigration, to stand up against the worst of the policies and to try and impact immigration policy. And um, the reasons are many. So corporations are made up of employees and shareholders. They have obligations to treat employees the same, whether they are immigrants or not. Um, they need to think about the growth of their workforce. They need to think about um, you know, who they're selling their products to, what they're doing for their shareholders. Um, immigration policy affects all of those. It affects their bottom line and it affects their responsibilities to their communities and their stakeholders. So I think it's a big part of um, all corporations um, in terms of they have a responsibility both to keep abreast of immigration policy, which I think most of them do for all the reasons I've mentioned, but also to stand up and speak about speak out against the worst of the abuses because all of those abuses, in addition to the political impact and kind of reducing the power and stature of the United States, they have an economic impact and they impact the employees, the workforce, and um, and the consumers and people who are buying the products of these corporations. And so um, I think they need to pay attention to and take action on these issues. All right. Let's talk about root causes. What do you think, if there is one, is the root cause of illegal immigration to the United States? And a related question, Who's supposed to fix all this? Is it, is it the president? Is it the Congress? Who, who's supposed to be responsible mainly for this problem? So the root causes of all immigration are similar, right? The root causes of immigration around the world and into the United States are climate change. It's people fleeing war and persecution, um, people fleeing economic problems or coming to the United States for jobs or education or to reunite with their families. And the difference between who is deemed legal and who is not has nothing to do usually with the actual person. It's just dependent on what country they happen to come from and what passport they hold. So this is really, again, going back to a political failure. And this is why we created the um, international immigration, refugee, and asylum system after World War II. So if you think about, um, it was started in the wake of people fleeing the Holocaust. All of the, um, for example, the Jewish people who were fleeing Germany during the Holocaust were by definition, um, didn't have documentation and papers because they had been stripped of their citizenship in Germany. So again, that was a political act by their government. It didn't have anything to do with what the people themselves themselves were doing. So when we look at it in that light, we can see that all of us have a responsibility to um, think about the best way to collaboratively and cooperatively 
um, address immigration, right? And looking at facts and evidence and basing our policies on those things. So the president has an obligation um, to set U.S. foreign policy to also um, oversee the U.S. immigration system and help make that policy. Congress actually has the power to implement the Immigration and Nationality Act, which governs um, immigration into the United States. And then we as people and community members have an obligation also to work together and figure out how do we address immigration and think about immigration as, you know, looking for um, solutions, right? Looking to um, problem solve around issues to recognize the value that immigration brings to this country and think about um, how to improve the system as opposed to use it for a political gain. Okay. You have mentioned the president. You have mentioned Congress. What about the judiciary? The judiciary actually has a limited role in um, in immigration policy, and their role is supposed to be limited limited to reviewing policy and making sure that it fits within our legal system. So one of the problems that we're seeing with the judiciary um, at many levels addressing immigration laws is that, pe- that um, we see a lot of judges and courts really departing from the rule of law and turning these decisions into politicized decisions as opposed to looking at our precedents and looking at what our laws are supposed to be doing. And this is really damaging because when we think about how our courts are interpreting and reviewing immigration laws, we have to remember that immigration laws are part of U.S. laws. The Immigration and Nationality Act is a federal U.S. statute. Um, All of these laws are American laws. And if we damage and fail to follow our own laws, even if we think we're doing that to target immigrants who might be non-citizens, we are actually damaging the rule of law and the legal system for all Americans. And the implications spread beyond the immigration system. And we need to be aware of that. And we need to think of that. We're, we're only as strong as our weakest link, right, when it comes to the rule of law. And we need to understand um, the devastating impacts that, um, you know, reinterpreting or misinterpreting our laws or failing to follow our constitution or the rule of law can have for all of us. Right. I'll say amen to that. Um, I wonder if I could get you to talk about our melting pot heritage. Do you think that immigrants truly bring unique value to our society. What are the pros and cons there, do you think? I do. I think immigrants have brought tremendous value to the United States, and we have a really mixed history, right? I don't want to discount the impact of settler colonialism and um, and the various ways that people were forcibly brought to the United States, as well as um, you know what happened um, to people within the United States, um, as well as how we've treated immigrants over time. So again, I think there are so many ways that immigrants have helped build the United States, have contributed to the vibrancy and innovation. Um, and growth of the United States. But I think that we need to understand that the way we treat immigrants is a reflection of who we are as a society. And it says a lot about how we treat one another. Um, we know that most Americans have immigrant roots. And um, and if we are continuing to scapegoat and deny immigrants human rights, then what does that say about who we are as a people and what our future is going to be? Okay. One final question. Uh, There's a significant backlog in the processing of deportation cases, and I believe asylum cases are a big part of that uh, immigration problem. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Um, Before you do, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that back in 2010, we had a backlog of about 100,000 asylum cases, and that's uh, ballooned into a present-day backlog of something like 660,000 
asylum cases. Um, what, what's happened there and what can we do about this kind of thing? Yes. So we have a tremendous backlog of both asylum cases and immigration cases at all levels of the system. And as you note, this is a tremendous problem. Um, but again, um, this is not a problem based on the, the increase in the backlog is not due to increases in the number of people coming to the United States or seeking asylum in the United States. It's due to the fact that we keep arbitrarily often changing and flip-flopping on our laws, right? We'll have one presidential administration that does one thing, someone else will be voted into office and flip-flop on the law and change it. And all every time something like that happens, the cases have to be, um, you know, the laws, everything has to be reevaluated and redone, and it creates bottlenecks in the system. And we have a system that's not intended to get people through fairly and quickly. We have systems that are, you know, in many cases, arbitrarily deciding who gets to stay in the United States and who doesn't. And, you know, treating these incredibly serious claims, right, where people are fleeing personal and political persecution. And they come to the United States and our legal system, you know, we have children who end up in court by themselves and who are supposed to re um, represent themselves and they don't, you know, they're too young, you know, they're toddlers, right? Yeah. They don't understand that they're in court. They're not able to defend themselves. All of these things, all of these, you know, inhumane practices um, create bottlenecks in the system. So what we need to do is think about how we can um, you know, look at the facts, create a system that is meant to be, um, you know, applying our laws, following our laws, you know, that is rational and like based on facts, as opposed to one that is constantly flip-flopping based on ideology or politics. And I want to say also that the backlog has a tremendous impact on people because being stuck in the immigration system means some, you know, you might be waiting in another country, waiting for a visa to come to the United States, or you might be in the United States, unable to work or get a permanent residence residency papers because your case is winding through the system. And when these relatively simple cases, um, well, they're not always relatively simple cases, but when these, these cases take years and years to uh, be resolved, they have such a tremendous impact. I mean, imagine the people who are separated from their families for years and sometimes decades because they're waiting for their visas or the families that are unable to um, you know, pursue education or employment opportunities because they're waiting for um, their case cases to wind through the system. And it just has a devastating impact, not only on the person whose case is stuck in the backlog, but on their families and on their communities. And we're all suffering again because of this. Okay. Thank you so much, Professor Rana, for talking to us today so knowledgeably and so comprehensively about this, qu this question of immigration. Um, and to our listening audience, thank you for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that's fought since 1920, over 100 years now, to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that affect their lives. Next month, we'll be talking to two guests, Maggie Sullivan of the Friends of Lake Monroe and Michelle Cohen of the Lake Monroe Water Fund. And they'll be talking to us about the health of Lake Monroe waters, which is a question of supreme importance to everybody who lives in Southern Indiana. Hope you can join us then.